We're going to continue this, this series, the little mini-series we've been having on David, and then Eric next week will tie everything together. Uh, we'll sweep all the bits and pieces up for us next week. Um, if you'd like to put if, get, put one finger in... Uh, I'm having difficulty reading this morning with these glasses. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12... On page 314, and then if you could put another finger in uh, Psalm 51 on page 573, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, and Psalm 53, that'll be grand. One of the amazing, incredible, I can't think of the word, astonishing thing about the God of the Bible is that he uses very real human beings like you and me to accomplish his purposes in the world. With all the people, with all the faults and failings and so on, God, our God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, uses people like that, uses me and you this morning to accomplish his purposes, to fulfill his plans. Isn't that thrilling? Isn't that encouraging to know that that is true? And when we read about these people in the Bible, what we find is that we don't read a great deal about them, but we read about God. So when we read about the people who were just very ordinary people who were used mightily by God, we discover more and more about our God. How wonderful, how mighty, how loving, how faithful he is. So these stories in the Bible of these people who were used so mightily by God, who lived such a long time ago, they are there to encourage us, to inspire us and to challenge us. We need all these things, don't we, in our Christian life. Living for Jesus, living for God in our world is not easy, will never be easy. So we need to be encouraged, we need to be inspired, we need to be challenged. And we see all of these things in this incident in David's life. So let us first of all pray, let us pray. Lord God, We come to your precious word this morning and we pray that you'll open our hearts and minds to what you want to to teach us, not me, you, Lord. That you will help us to be encouraged and strengthened in our life with you. Lord, we ask all these things in our Saviour's precious name. Amen. So let us turn then to the darkest time in David's life. A very dark time in David's life. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And here we have a contrast, a huge contrast between human weakness on one side and divine love on the other. So first of all, let us have a, have a look at the main content of this, these two chapters. We'll go through these very quickly, and then, with God's help, we'll try to 
uh, apply these um, verses, this passage, to our lives day by day. So fasten your seatbelts and off we go on a whistle-stop tour through these two chapters, okay? David is king. He has a firm grip on the people. He no longer leads his troops to send, but he sends out other people, other troops, other generals to do his business for him. And one day, he looks down upon Jerusalem, thinking with some satisfaction, all this is mine. He enjoys the feeling of success and sense of power. Then one evening, he gets out of bed, walks round on the roof of the palace, and sees, in verse 2, a very beautiful woman. Perhaps today she'd be on the front page of Vogue. He sees a very beautiful woman. She's bathing. And he's unable to keep his eyes off her. And he finds, he asks somebody, who is she? Who is this woman? And he is told that she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He could not keep his eyes off this woman. Later in verse 4, it says he sleeps with her. Someone has said this is not a description of a great love story, but of a seedy one-night stand. Whether she was a willing participant, we don't know. But lust and passion had consumed him. So David had a problem. His problem was her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And so he has plan A, plan A, which you can read later on, was to get this man drunk, but that failed. And so he turned to plan B, and he turned to his commander. His commander-in-chief was a man called Joab. And he said to Joab, put this man right in the hottest, fiercest part of the battle where he will be struck down and die. Uriah uh, dies in the battle. Joab gives a full account of the battle, including the death of this man. And David is told three times, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead, in verses 13, 21, and 24. David is left unmoved by all of this, and he's just concerned with encouraging Joab, his commander, to continue the battle, continue the battle. Meanwhile, Bathsheba mourns for the loss of her husband. David brings her to the palace. She becomes his wife and bears him a son. And then in verse 29, we read a very solemn, very sad verse. The thing displeased the Lord. That's almost an understatement. The thing displeased the Lord. Nothing could be more direct, emphatic than that. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 12, enters Nathan the prophet. Until now, David doesn't appear to feel any guilt or shame, anything like that at all. So Nathan tries to drive home the extent, the fact and the extent of David's sin and guilt by telling him a, a little story, which is, this is lovely. 
you find that in the early part of um, chapter 12, where he talks about two, two men, a poor man and a rich man. And the poor man had a little hue lamb. And it says here in verse 3, it was like a little daughter to him. It was like a little daughter to him. He was very fond, and the children were very fond of this hue lamb. But the rich man takes this lamb and he kills it in order to feed his friend, his traveller. When David heard this story, David is very angry and demands that the man be punished. He says this man's, what he's done is terrible and he should be punished severely. Nathan, I suspect, screams at David. You are the man. You are the man. David is left shocked, perhaps trembling. Then Nathan goes on to tell him about how God had blessed him. He says, David, you've been anointed. God has anointed you. He's given you so much. And then Nathan, in despair perhaps and sorrow, says, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his, in his eyes? And Nathan then goes on to spell out the consequences of David's action. At last, in verse 13, I think it is, 13, David confesses his sin and guilt and says, I have sinned against the Lord. Meanwhile, Nathan continues to spell out the consequences of his action. He says in verse 14, But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. The son born to you will die. The child becomes ill and dies. David, before this, pleads to God that the, the son will be spared, um, but he, he dies. Meanwhile, the attendants around David are puzzled by his conduct because David says something very, very strange. He says, but now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring the child back? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David doesn't feel particularly moved in a sense. He stopped grieving. He says that's the end of the story. And then in verse 24, uh, David makes love to Bathsheba and they have a son, Solomon. Let's pause for rest. I think we need it after all of that. Let us pause for rest and just sing two beautiful choruses. Cleanse me from my sin, reign in me. I sing these Saturday.
what then is the Lord saying to you and to me from these two chapters here this morning? In some ways they're very dark and depressing, rather sordid story of an ancient king who lived many, many years ago. Someone who as a youth was described by God himself, a man after God's own heart. But now he was a, a murderer, adulterer, a deceiver. He'd fallen as low as he possibly could, he could. Earlier on in his life, he mourned the loss of Jonathan and Saul. And he said, how great, how great uh, the fallen, the fallen. <laughs> but now, he himself has fallen. He himself has fallen. Why is this story found in the Bible? Why is this incident to be read for centuries and centuries and centuries? If it happened today, we can imagine the media having a holiday with all of this. Um, no doubt we would ring we would ring we would read um, king in lots of trouble palace goes to pieces and things like that and though that those if it was in the papers today would be there for our amusement our entertainment and obviously for a great deal of profit for people who make it who are writing these things but what is this story saying to you and to me here this morning what is here to help us in our Christian life? There are perhaps three things that the Lord is speaking to us about this morning. For here there is a severe warning, but also there are things to encourage us. And there's also an implicit reminder to look elsewhere, to look at, to look at someone else. So let us look at, first of all, the warning the warning about sin. Here in these two chapters, we have a, a very real insight into the nature of sin. First of all, that sin can take hold in a simple, insignificant moment. Sin can take hold, can take root in a single, insignificant incident. David's downfall began with a single, simple gaze. The glance became a gaze. Just one simple thing set in motion a whole chain of terrible events. David could never imagine the full significance of that glance. Likewise, a single phone call, a short letter, an off-cut remark, off-cuff remark, Something that's very insignificant, something that we don't think about at that moment in time can lead to sin and will continue to mushroom, if you like, to grow and to grow. No doubt David was felt off his guard. After all, he was flying high. He was the man. He was a great man, a great leader, great political, religious, spiritual leader a man of great power and respect. Then he took his eye off God and the things of God. So here, folks, is a serious warning to us all to be always aware 
to be on our guard. It's not easy for us, it would be impossible for us to weigh every single word, every possible action that we could perform in case it led to sin. But we need, I need, we all need, to constant prayer that he, every moment, every second, that God will hold us and help us. Secondly, the thing about sin that we find in these two chapters is a terrible warning, a very severe warning of the terrible, devastating consequences of sin. The terrible consequences of sin. And David is told openly of what will follow from his actions there will be a pattern of violence and adultery throughout his old family in Israel. On top of this, there will be the death of his son. Now, I'll let you to think about the ethical and the theological consequences or issues raised by this. But I think what's important for us to, to think about and to remember uh, is to is the fact that sin does have consequences. And sometimes it can have massive consequences for ourselves and for other people. But David confessed his sin. But he had to live with the consequences of his sin for the rest of his life. And no doubt he there would be moments when he would wake up because he was not unable to sleep because of what he'd done in the past. I believe that he was genuine, that he confessed his sins and so on and so forth, but he had to live with the dark consequences of his sin. So let us now turn away from, if you like, from the darkness to the light, to God himself. Because there's much to encourage us here. And what we find in this chapter here, these chapters here, is the wonderful truth that no matter how far we fall, how far great is our sin, how far away we might have wandered from him, there is always forgiveness, grace and hope. And that is the great Christian gospel message and it's not found anywhere else in the world however much we fail him and fall away from him and go our own way and be disobedient there is one whose arms are always open to us always and that's why David's story is essentially a story about God and not about David David said, I have sinned against the Lord. He must have felt devastated, distraught, perhaps at the point of despair. But Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. So amidst all the darkness, all, all the terrible things that, were, that had happened, there was a light of God continued to shine for David. <clears throat> but it was not an easy way back. 
If you could turn very, very quickly, please, to, to Psalm 51, because this is really a commentary on what David felt at this time. If I can read it very well. Um, David f- feels his guilt. He says, have mercy on me, God. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. David was broken. He was broken inside and outside. And he prays desperately for cleansing, for forgiveness. He experiences this psalm suggests a great deal of sadness and pain. So it wasn't for David a quick matter, a matter of a quick prayer. Oh Lord, forgive me, uh, I've sinned, and then just get on with it. As someone said, with God there is no such thing as cheap grace. There is no such thing as cheap grace. So he will receive us, he will forgive us if we come to him in true confession, realising what we've done, believing that it's not something that's easy, it's something that we need to feel deep down in our hearts and souls. So finally, there's a reminder. There's a reminder here of at least two things. As I said right at the beginning, that David clearly demonstrates how God continues to work in and through very imperfect, real people. Isn't that wonderful to know? And how amazing that work in David's life was, leading up to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. At best, we are just simple, ordinary vessels, inadequate for the work that God calls us, Yet nevertheless, (coughs) excuse me, he has chosen us to be his servants, his workers in the world. Isn't that amazing? God had called David and he didn't and he would not go back on that call. (coughs) Once God puts his hands upon us, he will keep his hands upon us. Oh, love that will not let me go. That's what it's all about. Once he puts his hands upon us, he will not let us go. Finally, the story also reminds us to look not to David, (coughs) not to anyone else for that matter, but to David's greatest son, our Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. The perfect sinless one. And not to people like ourselves. In a way, we are encouraged. We can be encouraged. We can be inspired and helped by other people. But when it comes down to it, essentially, fundamentally, we should not rely upon them. Simply because they, like us, are just real human beings with all their faults and failings. (coughs) So instead, we should look at our great high priest, 
as Hebrews tells us, the one who is able to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, who is tempted in all points like as we are, just without sin. So we ought not to look at others, but always at him. Because he knows our weaknesses. He knows how we are tempted and why we are tempted. For he himself has been through that way. And yet he is without sin. So let us learn from the people in the Bible. But always keep our eyes and hearts fixed upon David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.